Chief McAnopey was in trouble. He and his group of fellow Seminoles known as the Alachua Band needed to move, and quickly. Florida was changing. We had been bought by the United States from Spain in 1819, and just a few years later, America had made some major changes to their new peninsula. There were whole groups of people down here, known as the Seminoles, the unconquered people. They were ancestors of the Creek tribe from further north who had fled to Florida in search of safety a century before. Now the American government would be coming in and the Seminoles didn't want to recreate history and be wiped out. They wanted a treaty. They got one in the form of the Treaty of Moultrie Creek named for the small settlement south of St. Augustine where it was signed. Nehemothla, a Seminole chief, met with Governor William Pope Duval and made an agreement. The Seminoles were to be given their own land, millions of acres in the middle of the state, closer to the Gulf of Mexico than the Atlantic. By modern standards, it's about as wide as Tampa all the way east to Sanford and as long as Gainesville to about Lake Okeechobee. It was a tenuous treaty, but it worked. The Seminoles had a new, safe home. Except Chief McAnopey wasn't within those borders. He was actually near Moultrie Creek in a town that now holds his name. He was not within these new borders, and his band had to move or else face some serious danger. There was a perfect spot in the northern half of the new Seminole Territory in present-day Lake County. It had been a home for the Timaqua people for decades before, but actions by the Spanish had wiped them out. The spot was vacant now, and a beautiful deep spring was very active to those wishing to settle there. The clean, fresh water was not only abundant, but it also connected to the Gulf and the Atlantic via several different rivers. Micanopy built a home for himself here. Some historians believe that it was actually a meeting place of sorts for other Seminole chiefs. Micanopy had cattle, farming, steady trade, and some reports claim he even had slaves. Meanwhile, the Americans were seeking to make Florida more hospitable. A century before, the Spanish had built an early version of a highway called King's Road, it ran along the East Coast and connected St. Augustine to other colonies along the Atlantic. It had been consumed by the Florida wilderness since, however. The Americans did not surrender so easily and sought out rebuilding the King's Road, except further west this time. Twenty years had passed since the Treaty of Moultrie Creek with minimal trouble, but the United States couldn't leave well enough alone. For the King's Road to work, it had to cross through Seminole land. Needless to say, the Seminoles were not happy and Micanopy himself decided to take action. The Americans had come into their home, made a treaty, and then staunchly betrayed it. Micanopy left that camp that he had set up alongside his Alachua warriors. He and his soldiers ambushed a group of American soldiers heading southeast, the very same massacre that started the Second Seminole War. Years later, when the Seminoles were losing land and people, Micanopy moved again. He left that deep spring in the middle of the state and moved to the Everglades, where the Americans had no chance of catching up. There they remained, and Micanopy never returned to that spring. What remained, however, was the name, though it's unclear where exactly the spring's name came from. It may be a seminal word or a creek word. Throughout history, it has been spelled 25 different ways. We may not even know what it actually means. It could mean deep water or bitter water or sweet water. but we have a name. It was once the name of the spring, then it was the name of a town nearby, then it was the name of a steamship, then it was the name of a city again, and that's where it remains today. 
the name is the consistency and it lasts to this day. Okahumka. Deep in Lake County, south of Tavares, west of Claremont, Okahumka is there. But it wasn't always easy. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, the Floridian Podcast. This week, Okahumka, the little city with a long history hidden in plain view and the ghosts of its past built into its DNA. I would like to warn you now, the later parts of this episode include violent racism and brief mention of sexual assault. If those topics are too much for you, feel free to skip this episode or turn it off once I start discussing Sheriff Willis McCall. The advantage of being, you know, someone writing nonfiction is that um, my deadlines are pretty generous. So I have like five years. And so if I needed the story by the end of the week, there's only so much I could do. Um, so I know that I, I'm really interested in the longer, long game. I want to figure it all out. And so I just become obsessed with things. I read all the newspapers. I mean, that sounds insane, but you learn so much about a community just reading every single newspaper and seeing every little story that happens. The 4-H club, you start recognizing the names, the characters are showing up as kids in grammar school because they got good grades and you start like, I know this person now, like I'm learning more and more about them. And, and so to me, that, that was what really just pulling on every single thread. You know, some of them That's Gilbert King. Some, some He's a Pulitzer Prize winning author who has made a name for himself writing about historic cases in Florida, specifically in Lake County. His second book, Devil in the Grove, won him the Pulitzer. It's about the Groveland Four, a historical case that shook the nation in the late 1940s. It's a gripping read, frightening in a way that doesn't let you go. It's his more recent book, though, Beneath the Ruthless Sun, that really caught my interests in an entirely different way. It's about a mentally ill white man, Jesse Daniels, who was convicted for a crime he didn't commit, all because a conspiracy had decided to change the narrative. The setting of the story is really what attracted me, though. If you've traveled on our turnpike, you've likely seen the name on a rest stop. Okahumka, the city, however, is a ways away, and you've likely never even paid it a visit. That's because it is a blip on the map. I travel towards Lake County through Apopka, and the suburbs fall away suddenly. One minute you're on a business-heavy street, and the next you're in a truck route next to a farm. Lakes appear out of nowhere, and signs denote the historic Lake County town you're slowly moving through. It's hard to tell when you've arrived. It's quiet. There's one stoplight. Just a quarter mile away is a massive intersection, but you wouldn't know it in the town center. There's a gas station, a barber shop across the street, a trucking office at the same corner. A little further west are a series of small, quaint homes in rows and rows. To the north is a major highway that runs towards the villages. To the south, some farms that eventually lead to Groveland. This city today feels very southern, the type of town you'd see between massive cities and not pay it any mind. But two major federal cases are tied to this little city, and Florida's history is knotted up in its own timeline in ways that can't be separated. I wanted to get Mr. King's thoughts on the matter. We met in downtown Orlando and found an empty meeting room in a hotel. We set up some chairs, stacked my microphone on top, and talked for an hour. If you hear some rustling in the background, I apologize. We were drinking coffee. What, what's happening in that rural part of Central Florida that we don't really know about? Mm. A lot of people just told me, you know, I grew up in Miami and I would have to drive up to Tallahassee when I was younger and, 
And my parents always said, just go around Lake County. Don't drive through Lake County. And, and a lot of it, this was white or black. It didn't matter. Yeah. They felt like the reputation of it was like the Wild West. Mm-hmm. And, and I'd heard that a lot. I'd heard that from, you know, police officers in surrounding counties who, you know, had to deal with the reputation of Lake County. And they said, we'd pull people off and, I, and we'd have to say, you're not in Lake County. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, you know, this was in the 60s and 70s, too, even beyond, actually. Okahumka didn't have much going for it after Micanopy left. Nearly 50 years passed with almost no change. A post office had been built in 1845, but the cities north of Lake Denham and Lake Harris were prospering and started to draw more and more into the area. Tavares, Claremont, Leesburg, and Mount Dora were booming and filling in slowly but surely. Lake County had something that other parts of Central Florida didn't. Land. Lots and lots of land. There was opportunity for rich Europeans to come in and use this vacant land to build a real place for themselves. The best way to secure a place in the new frontier was to have property and to be growing things on it, and the new residents charged in with a plum. The railroad made its way to Okahumka in 1884 thanks to Henry Plant. Okahumka had been resettled as a town a few years earlier by a reverend, and this connection via the train was vital. Now, people from all over could visit. Many would come down via steamships from the oceans following the St. John's River and arriving at that very deep spring, which still didn't have a set name yet. One of the most famous ships that ran this route was called Oki Humki, apparently named for a chief who lived further north in what is now the Ocala National Forest. Despite traveling to Okahumka and having a name that is remarkably similar, they seem to share no relation. Rich folks would sit on its shallow decks, taking in the Florida sunshine, and they would arrive in central Florida in the middle of relatively untouched land. After taking a boat like the Okehumkey, tourists would then hop on a train and take it south to the Gulf of Mexico, leaving that little city behind. And it was still little now, like it always has been. Though the city itself had less than a thousand people, they became known for their highly prosperous farming, shipping out citrus, turpentine, lumber, and most importantly, watermelon. Okahumka was, at certain points from the 1880s to the 1920s, the watermelon capital of the world, growing and shipping out thousands of watermelons, especially during the summer months. Okahumka contained nearly half of the total acreage of watermelons in the whole county. Little towns started popping up all over, settlements of rich white families looking to make an industry in the fertile Florida soil. Though watermelon was Okahumka's original game, the farms eventually shifted focus as everything did and citrus swept Lake County as it did everywhere else in Florida. With the great freezes hitting in the late 1890s, the newly rich citrus tycoons fled east, either to Orlando or all the way to the Indian River Lagoon, where citrus is still abundant to this day. Whole towns were written off the map. Chetwind, Conant, and Villa City disappeared or were swallowed up. Mount Dora, Claremont, Leesburg, and Tavares became prospering cities through the misshapen region. Almost overnight, Lake County became a county of inconsistencies, bubbling with suburban sprawl, surrounded by great swaths of rural communities and farmland. Caught in the middle and with nowhere else to go, Okahumka settled in. It had once held so much prosperity, but by the time World War II came and went, Okahumka was a village, a name on the map and the clear waters bubbled on. Then came Sheriff Willis McCall. 
I'll warn you now, this is where it's going to get rough. Here's Mr. King. What is it about Lake County? And I, I kind of figured it out. This is what my explanation is. You know, Willis McCall was so notorious that he called a lot of attention to himself. He was involved in some very big cases that, you know, civil rights cases that made it to the U.S. Supreme Court. So because of that, those, there were Department of Justice investigations. And so because of the cases that got so much attention, they created this really a glut of paperwork about Lake County. The investigators came in here and just interviewed everybody. And, you know, they talked about other crimes that, you know, crimes that happened that just didn't really, well, you know, maybe the person got killed or something and it's not an investigation because there's really no one to really investigate now. That part of it's over. But they talk to everybody about these things. So you're able to use those files to build up, um, you know, it, all of this world around Lake County. Part of it was, was because of, of Willis McCall's reputation and, and the fact that, you know, he was out there in the newspapers giving really uh, colorful quotes and, you know, uh, bragging about the fact that he'd been investigated 49 times and he beat every single one of them. Um, but, you know, the downside Here's a quote from Sheriff McCall's autobiography, which he wrote and published in 1988. This is from his preface. Quote, There have been many slanted stories published during my career as sheriff, filled with innuendos, half-truths, and outright lies by the liberal press. I feel compelled to put together the facts about some of the most important and publicized events, pointing out the source from which they originated. End quote. Through the rest of the book, more than half of it is newspaper clippings, positive and negative, about McCall. He also includes his version of events for dozens of stories, some of his most notorious. One section called The Wisdom of Willis McCall includes such horrifically racist statements that I won't dare repeat them to you. McCall served seven consecutive terms as sheriff of Lake County from 1944 to 1972. During that tenure, he became notorious for his violent racism, his gaslighting tactics, his corrupt actions, his cruel demeanor, and his tendency for black prisoners to be beaten, tortured, or killed under his supervision. That is where Gilbert King's book, Devil in the Grove, comes in. I won't tell you the whole story. You really should read the novel, but it's connected to Okahumpka, and frankly, you need to know what happened. The truth. The story is long, one of the most famous in Florida history, but in short, it's 1949, and four black men are falsely accused of raping a white woman outside of Okahumka. The first, Ernest Thomas, was shot in the woods by a white mob within days. The remaining three, Charles Greenlee, Sam Shepard, and Walter Irvin, were convicted. Greenlee was given a life sentence as he was a minor. Shepard and Irvin, however, were sentenced to death. Future Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall brought the case to the U.S. Supreme Court. Harry T. Moore, the field director in Florida, the NAACP, assisted in this. The death sentences were overturned at the federal level, but McCall had other ideas. He murdered Shepard and nearly killed Irvin. He claimed the prisoners were escaping. This is a lie. Irvin was set to be executed, but the governor stepped in at the last minute. He was committed to life in prison in 1954. An image of Shepard and Irvin after being shot by McCall is in his autobiography. It is stomach-turning. After all this, McCall remained the sheriff. He was not prepared, however, for the changes coming. Nearly a decade later, Florida was starting to be a better place. At the time, many would thank the new governor, 
Leroy Collins, a progressive for the time who left a huge mark on Florida. But again, Okahumka steals the spotlight, this time in the form of Virgil Hawkins. Um, people really didn't know what to think of Florida. It didn't seem like it was south. It was you know south of the south. It's not a cotton belt state. So things that happened in Florida, a lot of times they go, well, they have a fairly progressive governor in Leroy Collins. Um, you know, all this Miami is a it's a huge state. It's not like Alabama, Mississippi. So things that would happen down in, in Florida that would sort of they wouldn't make the civil rights headlines mm-hmm. because they were just not as 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 perceived as being part of that the deep south. But it was, and we are. The Jim Crow laws that split black citizens from the white citizens were here too, and not even that progressive governor could make that disappear at first. If segregation wasn't enough, powerful racism pervaded the state for decades before, especially in our most rural corners. According to one analysis of historical lynchings between the years of 1882 and 1930, quote, Florida had the highest per capita lynching rate of any state in the nation, end quote. Black workers were making new lives as farmers for the rich white citizens building up empires in the open lands of Lake County, but national trends started sparking change in Florida. Into the 50s, as the fight for civil rights swept America and Brown versus Board of Education in 1954 started shaking things up further, people wanted to make moves, and make moves now. One such figure was Virgil Hawkins. He was in his early 40s, working for Bethune-Cookman University, a historically black university. In 1949, in the same year of the Groveland case that was rupturing his home county, Virgil applied to attend the University of Florida College of Law. A month after application, UF denied him based on race. He took it to the state Supreme Court where he was shot down again but gained some ground. They demanded the creation of Florida A&M University. When Brown v. Board of Education came in five years later, the Supreme Court said Hawkins must be allowed to attend UF. They denied him. Virgil Hawkins did not surrender. Now in his 50s, Hawkins kept showing up. Further west, in Tallahassee, a new governor had stepped up as well, Leroy Collins. Still considered to be one of Florida's first progressive leaders, Collins served from 1955 to 1961. Collins was in the right place at the right time. He was a state senator when our 32nd governor, Dan McCarthy, died in the office. The acting governor, Charlie Johns, ran to retain the position but lost to Leroy, who came into the job and served consecutive terms for the first time in Florida history. Within a year, discussions concerning integration are sweeping the South, and Leroy decides to take a stand, calling segregation, quote, custom and law, end quote. History shares that Collins changed his opinion, taking a more hardened stance in favor of desegregation later in his gubernatorial career. By the time he left office, he was now a massive advocate for desegregation and civil rights. When there were riots in Tallahassee, he spoke out in favor of the rioters. In his seven years in office, Florida's public schools changed drastically. He himself was so changed that a few years later, he walked across the bridge in Selma with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. For Collins, that's his legacy. But as important as Collins was, he was simply the governmental form of the fight. It was Okahumka's hometown hero that really reconstructed the state. I'm happy to tell you that Virgil Hawkins won but not in the way he originally anticipated. He had to withdraw. He rescinded his application in 1958. In exchange, the Florida Supreme Court made it so UF's graduate and professional schools were now desegregated. 
That September, the College of Law started admitting black students. The following year, little towns across the state started desegregating, and within a few years, the Civil Rights Act changed the whole conversation. After a decade of fighting, Hawkins lost his personal battle, but won the greater war. It's even more astounding, all of his accomplishments, when you consider the other drama in Virgil's life at one point in this tumultuous decade. It's December 10th, 1957, in Okahumka, Florida. Blanche Knowles, a white woman, is home alone with her kids asleep in bed when a man breaks into her home and rapes her. Her husband was not home, as he was on the west coast of the state meeting with his mistress. Blanche calls for the police and immediately reports with no uncertainty that a black man had raped her in her home. Two dozen black men were arrested in the area. One was Melvin Hawkins Jr., Virgil's nephew, who still lived in town. Some were beaten, others were left with no outside communication, but all were eventually released. A grand conspiracy was hatched behind closed doors. Joe, Blanche's husband, was not comfortable with sharing a story that she had been raped by a black man, so the sheriff would arrest a white man, particularly a white man that they could manipulate. They arrested Jesse Daniels, who was 19 at the time, and suffered from a disability that left him with a childlike state of mind. He was manipulated, lied to, and forced into giving a false confession. Eventually, he wound up in the state hospital in Chattahoochee on the Panhandle, where he remained until 1971, when he was released. This is the story of Beneath a Ruthless Sun, the third book by Gilbert King and his most recent. The book covers the events leading up to the crime, the world of Lake County in the 50s, and the troubled life of Jesse Daniels. Again, I won't tell you the whole story. The book is a whirlwind, a dive through history that doesn't let up. A lot of the stories I've told you today are from this book. One of the most compelling figures in the story is Mabel Norris Reese, who owned an independent paper called the Mount Dora Topic. Reese was a tough reporter who had stood with Sheriff McCall during the Groveland cases. When she came to realize the sheriff's wrongdoings, she turned on him and swore to expose everything wicked he and his officers did in her county. When Jesse Daniels was arrested, Reese refused to accept the story as true, fought adamantly about it in her papers, advised Jesse's mother on how to proceed, and argued for years to get Jesse out. The Daniels case was the hill she was willing to die on. Decades later, long after she passed, Gilbert King was seeking out her documentation. So far, he was coming up dry. Because I've been looking for Mabel's articles. She'd written about 100 articles about this story, and now I found it was suddenly missing from, from the archives of the newspaper. Um, it's just that one year where all her stories were, it was gone, and it was also missing from the University of Florida's microfilm and also the Mount Dora microfilm. They're all just missing that one year. And, um, you know, I... I there's part of me that thought that that wasn't really an accident, that, you know, she was writing, she was naming names, she had a conspiracy theory that she was working on, she couldn't prove it. And I, I talked to her daughter, Patricia, several years ago, and I asked her, did, did your mom save any of, any of her files or any memoirs or anything from her reporting days? Because she had, you know, decades-long career as a reporter, she wrote stories about Martin Luther King befriended him. She had a, a long career. She wrote about Groveland. And uh, Mabel's daughter said, no, she didn't save anything from her career. And I just thought this was so depressing because I was kind of counting on something like from there. Maybe not that they would try a memoir, but just <clears throat> correspondence or something. And um, 
about a year later, Mabel's daughter passed away, and um, I called over to, to give my condolences, and I talked to the granddaughter, Cindy Chesley, and she said, oh, by the way, Gilbert, I found a box in the attic. It looks like grandma's stuff. And I went down to Daytona Beach almost right away, and I opened it up. It was a small department store box, but everything in that box was the Jesse Daniels case. She kept nothing else, no, nothing from her days with Martin Luther King, nothing from the Groveland case. It was all Jesse Daniels. And I, I almost had this moment where I was thinking, you know, this was sort of like history crying out. It was all History her- was crying out. Okahumka somehow radiates that energy. For Gilbert King, when he headed out to Lake County in search of this story years ago, it wasn't just the city he found. I, I spent a lot of time there. There's really not much there, but... Um, there was people there, and so people would talk to me, and so I met a lot of old timers, and I actually literally went around knocking on doors, finding out where people, like, they would say, you should go talk to Joe Branham. He lives in this house, his family's been there for 75 years, and that's exactly what I did, and, uh, you know, it was fascinating because he remembered the case, and he remembered a lot of details about it, and, and he was able to give me details that did not show up in the files at all, nothing I found. Um, And so he was able to make a really seminal moment in the story when he talked about how they first came. Before they came to frame Jesse Daniels for this crime, they came to frame his uncle um, because his uncle was um, perceived as different. He was a bachelor, never married, and so he was one of those vulnerable ones, but he had money. And so he was able to get a lawyer right away, a lawyer who was, you know, on the board of the same bank as as all the high-flying people Mm -hmm. in, in, in Lake County. And clearly that made a huge difference because the lawyer was able to explain, you got the wrong guy. Whereas Jesse Daniels, you know, mentally disabled, parents have nothing, he couldn't fight back. And so that, that to me was like really fascinating. I met some really great people in Okahumka who, who I became friends with after a while and people who had been around, knew Jesse Daniels um, and, and told me a lot of stories, really great details about fishing holes, what, what the place looked like, who ran the general store. Right. And, um, and I just think it's that kind of world building when you're like a narrative nonfiction writer. You know, I want to feel like you're, I want the reader to feel like you're stepping back in time and you can picture so, the character. If you'll allow me, let me paint the scene for you one last time and then I'll let you go. In the same area where Micanopy slept the night before he started the Second Seminole War. In the same area where new Floridians came by a steamship and charted a course for the coasts. In the same area where the world's watermelon supply once depended. In the same area where Virgil Hawkins was born before he went on to help Florida move to the future. There is one stoplight. There is a man in an empty lot nearby who sits in his pickup truck cooking barbecue in a smoker which he sells for a couple bucks. Trucks rumble through and sounds resound down the little streets. Along those little streets are small homes, some that have surely been here for decades with flags hanging from the porch and little chairs out front on the grass. There's another major road that runs east to west. There in plain view with a fresh cone of paint is the old Knowles home where the crime back in 57 took place. It's just there. Right next to it is Bug Spring Road, a small dirt road which leads north toward that famous deep pool that was once called Okahumka itself. Now it's called Bug Spring. At the end of that road are a handful of signs displaying no trespassing, property of the U.S. Navy, in all caps. This property was originally used starting in 1956 by the U.S. Navy to test sonar in its crystal clear waters. In 2012, it was bought by the Naval Undersea Warfare Center, a division of the Navy. 
it's so quiet back there that arrays can be tested with no additional ambient noise. The dirt on this side of the road heading back there was very well tread. Clearly others had made the same trek to the end of the road to make a hasty turnaround as I did. There's a house back there, and a little facility that Mr. King got to pop back and visit. He even shared that the man across the street who sells the barbecue out of his truck once told him of UFOs and dancing lights emerging over the spring. As tantalizing as that is, that's a story for another day. Across the dirt road is a massive field, clearly used for agriculture in the 20th century. Leaning against it is what appears to be a former campaign sign for a member of the Knowles family. It just says Knowles in big text. Likely David Knowles, son of Joe and Blanche, who served as a Leesburg commissioner. It's glaring at you. It knows you're there. And it's all there. Whether we want to run from it or not, it's all there. I visited Okahumka a few months ago before I had really jumped into the research. I knew so little about the city and so little of the stories of those who had come and gone. Without that context, this little town is just another little town. With that context, it's vibrant. There's the house. There's the spring. There's the highway. There's the back road. There it is. It's all so heightened in retrospect and you can see the heroes and the villains of these stories driving or walking by you can just see them and you can see those decades passing by with all the changes swirling around with a notorious sheriff at the center and it tells us something i'll let mr king tell you what i think that's that was really a part of what the story i was trying to tell is you have lake county which Seems like in a lot of places in Lake County is this county that's lost in time. Time It's kind of rural, very old-fashioned, old America. And yet, right at the same time, you have this explosion of like the space business on the coast. It's not too far away. So I, I wanted to use those images of like these young, innocent kids who are in Lake County um, and, you know, seeing these rockets go flying into the sky and they're going up at all different times, day and night, and the space business is moving there. And you have Lockheed and you have all these uh, companies coming down there employing more and more people and this population growth that is just booming around Cocoa Beach um, get in the late 50s going into the 60s as the space wars heat up. And then it's just bumping right up against rural Lake County. They're just, we're about oranges, we're about cattle, we're not into that whole space thing. And just that's America for, for you right in a nutshell. It's this modernization that's happening with the old fashioned values and, and industries, and it's all right there in Florida. And, and really, I, I think to me that was what really, um, you know, sort of accentuated the main point was that Willis McCall was, he was in charge of this domain that was kind of lost in time. He was resisting the modernization that the rest of Florida was experiencing. But Sheriff McCall is gone. He is just a story now, along with all the others. And while it's important to remember the bad things as well as the good, I hope that Okahumka can carry on the legacy of all the great, wonderful people that passed through those little streets so long ago. I think it deserves that.
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes, the Floridian podcast. I sincerely hope that you enjoyed it. I also hope that you enjoyed this last episode of Tallahassee Tuesday, which came out this past Tuesday. There will be another one of those this upcoming Tuesday as I continue to discuss the past legislative session that happened up in Tallahassee over the past two months. If you've been enjoying the stuff that has been coming out over the past few months, please leave us a review. This show can only grow if you are sharing it with a friend or leaving a review on iTunes Reviews go a long way to increasing the popularity and viewership of a little independent show like this one. You can help. That would seriously mean a lot to me. You can also find the show on Twitter at Wait5Minutes, on Instagram at Wait5MinutesPodcast, and you can send me an email with a topic or just tell me how you're enjoying the show at Wait5MinutesPodcast at gmail.com. Those links are in the description below. All of the music used in this episode is from Lobo Loco. You can find those titles in the description below, along with all of the links used in the research as well. Next Friday, another fascinating Lake County town, but with an entirely different story. The Villages. Whether you've heard of them or not, you will definitely never forget them. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you have a wonderful weekend. I will be here next Tuesday with another episode of Tallahassee Tuesday and then again next Friday with another regular episode. I would like to give a very special thank you to Mr. Gilbert King who is so kind and helpful and easy to communicate with and I'm very grateful for his time. Please go check out his books, Devil in the Grove and Beneath the Ruthless Sun as if he needs any more publicity. Those books are the best. I will see you Tuesday. Until then, I'm Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourself. Be good to others. Buy yourself a little reusable water. And with it, drink more water. See you Tuesday.